recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. face-to-face, outside, the brave souls out there in the cold, if there are any. Those of you joining online, we welcome you this morning. Uh, If you're joining us relatively new um, or you're visiting for the first time, we're kind of heading towards the end of a series that we've been in, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, Everyone I talk to is saying, why did we do this series? Um, Brave souls to do this series, but um, I've, I've enjoyed it and I trust you have too. It's been challenging. I hope you've learned a few things, and uh, but it's interesting as we've embarked on this series, the number of places Ecclesiastes seems to be popping up in devotionals. Other churches seem to be kind of doing it too, and so I'm like, okay, well maybe God is wanting us to engage with this difficult book at this time because He wants to say something to the church, not just our church, but the church. Um, so it's been great uh, for us to engage with what the teacher is trying to teach us, um, and. Really, he's made it very clear to us that our world is broken. Uh, There's something fundamentally wrong with our world. And in spite of our best efforts and our best work, uh, we're never going to be able to make life work the way we want it to. And as Abby alluded to it, uh, death is unpredictable and it will come. And it's kind of the great equalizer. And we've come across that theme over and over again. This morning, uh, in chapter 8, the writer really wants us to engage with this idea of power. Power. Um, And I wonder what comes to your mind when I say that word or when you see that word. Uh, Maybe it's electricity. Maybe it's marvel. Maybe it's uh, influence or the ability to control. Or maybe it's a sign of success. Uh, Maybe different concepts. Maybe it's something negative like the, the darkness of power or the corruption of power, or the abuse of power. Maybe those ideas are what come to your mind, depending on your experience and, and kind of how you've grown up and the things that have happened to you. We bring all kinds of different ideas to this notion of power. Now, as we read through this text, I mean, we're not going to read through the whole chapter, but I trust that you, you have uh, read through it as, as you've come prepared. Um, you'll notice that the, the context that, the teacher, Kohelet, is speaking to is of someone who's serving in a palace or is serving a king. Um, That's kind of the context. Now, we might kind of go, well, what benefit is that to us? Yes, while we're not in the same context, we're all in situations of power, whether that's in our home as kids and parents relate or husbands and wives relate, uh, in our workplaces as we relate to our bosses or as we manage staff. Um, We we are in context of power in school uh, or at university uh, with the institutional powers of our government. Uh, We're all in different contexts of power. And I think what the teacher has to say here can really help us as he's trying to help us to live wisely in the context of a world where power is broken and corrupted like everything else is. And so I want us to kind of think about the situations and the context that that we might find ourselves in as we read through uh, or as we kind of unpack what the writer is saying here so that we can kind of apply and think about how that might look in our context. So let me pray 
um, and we will jump into it. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for the teacher. Uh, Lord, it's been challenging at times, but it is your word and it has something to say to us today. And so we bring our hearts before you and we humble ourselves before you and we pray that you will give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us. And Lord, as we think about this difficult, perhaps, concept of power, that you'll help us as wise ones, as your people, to live in light of uh, the brokenness in our world and to live well in our world, that we might glorify and honor your name. And I pray that you'll help me to communicate your word faithfully in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in some ways, Kohelet is continuing from chapter 7. Uh, last week, we looked at the idea of how does wisdom make our life better? And in some ways, the writer, uh, Kohelet, is, is kind of extending it now to think about how does wisdom help you relate to power well and therefore make your life better. Um, we see in verse uh, 1 of chapter 8, he kind of is flowing on from this idea, who is like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its heart appearance. So again, having wisdom in, in a, a situation of power brightens your face and changes your heart appearance, makes your life better if you act as a wise person. So that's kind of the, the broader context. And so let's look at specifically what the teacher is trying to say. Well, the first thing he's wanting us to, uh, to grapple with is this idea of the reality of power. Um, again, we've seen the teacher over and over again is wanting to expose our illusions. He, he doesn't pull any punches. He, he paints a very real portrait of what life looks like. And so he lists a whole bunch of things in these opening verses of the reality of power in the world. The king will do whatever he pleases, verse 3. A king's word is supreme, verse 4a. A king cannot be challenged, verse 4b. Disobedience, defiance, and desertion will not be tolerated, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5a. A man lords it over others to their or his own hurt. You'll notice that the NIV gives both possible interpretations. And scholars have kind of debated, well, is it he lords it over to his own hurt or to the people's own hurt? And most agree that maybe Kohelet meant both. And that's why he used a very ambiguous Hebrew word that can be interpreted both ways. And we know that idea, right? Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. It affects both the person who wields the power and the people who are the, the recipients of that power. So, he makes it very clear that we live in a world where this idea, this reality called power exists. Whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not, whether we think it's used badly or well, it exists. And that's because this notion of power and authority is something that God instituted. And when we go back all the way to Genesis chapter 1, we see that when God created humans, He gave them authority. He gave them the calling to rule His creation under his authority, under his rule as vice regents, if you like. But still, it was his idea and it was part of the way God created us to actually subdue and to rule and to have authority over God's created world. And then Genesis 3, sin comes into the world where again, humans, right from the beginning, abused that authority, decided to commit treason against God, reject His authority, reject being under Him, and wanted to assert our own authority, our own, our own power, go our own way, do our own thing, be our own bosses, the masters of our own dominion. And so sin enters the world, death enters the world, corruption comes into our hearts, 
And then we see this idea of power corrupted from that point on. Beginning in Genesis 3, where the, the first relationship between Adam and Eve is now corrupted by abuse of power. And then from that time on, in every context, we see the corruption of our sinfulness affecting the way we use our power. But it is a reality. So now we come to the New Testament, and that still raises the question for us, because we still live in a world that has power, that has authority, and that power is real. How do we live in that space? Well, Jesus said, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Uh, The apostles often said, submit yourselves to authorities, slaves to masters, husbands and wives in that relationship, parents and children. There are authority structures in the world, and you need to figure out as a Christian now how you're going to live that out. But the authority structures and power hasn't gone anywhere, and we are called to engage with that. Now, again, we don't live in the Roman Empire. We don't live in uh, the kinds of context that Kohelet is talking about. It's very, very different, our understanding of authority and power. But yet, we still have to wrestle with that tension of how do we, as followers of Jesus, submit ourselves to the authorities and powers that we find ourselves in. And it's interesting that recently, because of COVID, the church in the West particularly, have started to engage with with this idea of to what extent do we as Christians obey the governments of our land because of all the restrictions and the rules. And there's been a lot of debate, particularly in the American church, where some pastors and churches have advocated civil disobedience. They go, you know, our lordship is to Christ. We don't care what the government's going to say. We're just going to do our own thing. And then others within the church have kind of corrected that and gone, hold on a second. We we can't just, you know, completely abandon authority and reject authority and, and, you know, encourage unrest and rebellion and civil disobedience nor should we just kind of lie there and take it and just do what the government tells us. What exactly are we supposed to do? Now, again, that conversation hasn't been the same in Australia because our relationship to government and church and our understanding of those realities are a little bit different to the Americans. But there have been conversations, even in Australia, about the church and its role in lobbying the government and and the the church's responsibility to hold the government to account and to kind of challenge the government's rulings on things like COVID restrictions that are unfair and unjust and, and all of those things. So the writer says, power is real and that power has great effect and authority. And for us as Christians, we still need to engage with how we can live in the context of that power existing. Unless we get too discouraged by that, the the writer, the teacher, goes on to tell us very, very quickly that even though power and authority is real, it is limited. It is limited, even though he uses language like in verse 4, since a king's word is supreme, and he says, you know, um, the king, verse 3, will do whatever he pleases. The the impression that he's creating is in this supreme ruler. And again, in our context, that seems quite alien and foreign. But when we look at biblical history, all the way back with the powers of Egypt, Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, um, and many of the rulers that we find in the Bible, we we understand how this works. And even in human history, as we look back on our our own history, we see rulers like um, Idi Amin and Adolf Hitler and Pol Pot, and the list goes on and on and on of those who almost had this supreme power where their word could not be challenged. But Kohelet says, hang on, again, 
that's an illusion for the leader who believes that they are supreme. And in this next section, he, he, he sets limitations on this power. And again, he does this by listing several things. He says in verse 7, no one knows the future, not even this supreme leader. No one has power over the wind to contain it. Verse 8a, notice that he's picking up the theme of wind, something that he's talked to all of us about, that we can't chase the wind, nor can a supreme ruler contain the wind. No one has power over the time of their death. Abby referred to that this morning. Those who abuse their power will be trapped by their own wickedness. They become ensnared by it. Verse 8. The wicked will die someday, just like everybody dies. The wicked too, no matter how powerful, no matter how influential they are, they will die, they will be buried, and they will be forgotten, even in the city where they were most visible and well-known. Now that's encouraging to us. And again, maybe not so much to us, because in our context, we have systems of government in our workplaces, in schools, in uni- wherever, that have checks and balances that regulate power. But many of our brothers and sisters live in parts of the world where it's not. Where what Kohelet is saying here is true for them. If they were to defy or disobey the government, they do that at great risk. That comes with life or death consequences. And so I think, again, as much as we can be encouraged by this and be thankful to God for it, and I think we ought to be thankful to God for the freedoms that we have in this great country and and really be so appreciative for, for God's blessing for us. But I think we also ought to pray for our governments that, uh, and our leaders and those in authority, not just in government, but in our workplaces, in schools and universities, that God will continue to give them wisdom to govern well. And I think we also ought to pray for our many, many brothers and sisters all over the world who are even today experiencing great hardship and great persecution. You have seen in my email about the situation in Ethiopia and Myanmar. And, you know, if you get the Voice of the Martyrs subscription newsletters, every week there there is just horrendous things that are happening all over the world. And we ought to pray to the God who is sovereign, who is supreme, to pose limitations, to bring justice, to bring righteousness, to bring an end to wickedness, because He is the only supreme one. Every other power is limited. The next thing He he wants us to, to grapple with is this relationship between God and power. God and power. And again, it's something He's addressed over and over again. And in this section too, it it just raises a whole bunch of questions for him. Verse nine, all this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done on the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Then too, I saw the wicked buried, sorry, verse 11. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although the wicked, wicked person commits a hundred crimes, they may live a long time. And then in verse 14, there is something else meaningless that occurs on the earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This idea of, God, how do we make sense of abuse of power and injustice and violence and corruption if you reign sovereign and supreme? And as we've said before, this idea of the ongoing place of wickedness and evil and corruption in the world is the biggest obstacle for people believing in a loving and powerful God. It just doesn't make sense to them. 
And Kohelet is wrestling with the same tension, with the same idea of how do I reconcile God and power and, and God's sovereign power and His goodness and His love with the realities of abuse of power in our world. It doesn't make sense. But some of the things that he says here as he's exploring this idea and as he's wrestling with this in his mind and in his heart can be helpful to us as we think about that for ourselves. It doesn't take away the tension. It doesn't take away the difficulty of it. It doesn't take away, you know, the need to keep searching for answers. But, I, I, you know, I, I think there's things here that can help us sit with that tension. The first thing that he alludes to again in verse 11 and 12 is that God's timing is not our timing. God's timing is not our timing. We wish that God would just act right now, bring pain right now, get those leaders right now so that they'll stop from committing more crimes. That's what he's saying. If the sentence for a crime is carried out quickly, then people's hearts won't be filled with schemes to do wrong. But because it's not, they continue to do wrong. So God, why, why wouldn't you just get them now? Do it now. But sometimes we need to understand that God sees the world from a very, very different perspective. And His ways of working in our world is very different. I don't know if you've ever experienced that yourself where, you know, when you've, you've had to make a decision or you've had to see a situation and you think you have a, a good idea or a good understanding of what's really going on, but you don't realize that other people who sit in different positions see that same situation very, very differently. And that's the thing. Sometimes we look at the evil and the wickedness in our world and we think, man, if I was God, this is what I would do. But the thing is, we're not God. And we don't have his perspective. And we don't have his understanding of time and history. And that's why in, in 2 Peter, Peter says this, that we should not understand God's timing like ours because don't forget he says dear friends with the Lord a day is like a thousand years now none of us have that perspective we can't even imagine what that might be like unless you watch Endgame you know in Marvel you get a little bit of an understanding how time is in a different universe and people can be gone for weeks but it's like only been five seconds in our all of that kind of stuff it's, it's from you got it from here from the Bible and a thousand years is like a day Peter says and listen to this, the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's timing and God's perspective is different. The second thing He, he tells us here is that Submission to God is ultimately better. And in verse 12b, he comes to this conclusion. He says, although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before Him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them. And their days will not lengthen like a shadow. He says, look, as we look at the world, we see evil thriving. We see powerful and wicked people abusing their power and using their authority badly. But... In spite of all of that, for you and for me as God's people, it will always be ultimately better for us to live in reverence and fear before God. And I think that ought to encourage us as we wrestle with these tensions, as we try and make sense of it. And Jesus kind of alluded to this idea as well when he said that, you know what, there's lots of people in our world that wield power that we ought to be afraid of. In Luke 12, he said this, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. That's pretty intense power. And after that can do no more, but I will show you whom you should fear, whom you should revere. 
Fear him who, who after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You know, and there was a, a, another um, incident where Jesus is talking to his disciples in the next chapter in Luke 13, where they're wrestling with, you know, this tower in Siloam falling on some people and Caesar killing some people and mixing their blood with the sacrifices, weird stuff. And the disciples are trying to figure out how to make sense of all of that evil. And Jesus says, don't think that those people who experience that abuse of power any better or worse than you. What you need to do is repent for yourself. Live in fear of God and reverence Him. And that's what Koalet is saying. As we look at our world, we can't figure it all out. We might not have all the answers, but it will go better when we bow the knee to Jesus in the midst of all of the craziness that's going on in our world. The third thing he tells us is that, you know, in spite of all of this, we'll never figure this out. I love in verse 16, he says, when I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night. So he's saying, man, I I could stay up all night. People are staying up all night to try and figure this out. Then I saw all that God has done. And this is his uh, Conclusion, no one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. He's saying, you know, we can, we can engage with this, we can think about it, we can wrestle with it. But at the end of the day, God's dealing with evil and wickedness and the abuses of power remain a mystery to us. We'll never fully understand it. And we will feel the effects of that and we will struggle with that. And Kohelet says, that's okay. That's okay for it not to make sense to us. To come to a point of being able to trust God with our whole lives, to trust in His sovereignty and His power and His goodness, even when none of it makes sense to us. The last thing I want to share on this particular point, Kohelet doesn't talk about, because as we found in several points, Kohelet can only take us so far to this idea of life under the sun before the cross. But the cross gives us such a different perspective on our understanding of power and God's relationship to it. Because the the cross reminds us that God has actually overcome, triumphed over the powers. And that's what Colossians says. Uh, God has triumphed over all evils through through the cross, by nailing them to the cross, he made a public spectacle of them, having disarmed the powers and authorities, all spiritual powers and all the powers that stand behind political powers and any other power on creation that is evil and wrong, God has triumphed over them in the cross. And how did God do that? Not by displaying his power, not by flexing his muscles, but by the most powerful one in the universe, the one who created the universe by the power of his word, becoming a baby and coming and clothing himself in frail humanity, making himself vulnerable to weariness and human experience and and pain, and ultimately laying down his life on a cross in submission to his power, in submission to the powers and authorities that were of the land. And I love the the, the couple of stories of the passion narrative when uh, the, the soldiers come to arrest Jesus in the garden and, you know, I think Peter whips out his sword and hacks off the guy's ear and Jesus says, hang on, hang on, boys, calm down. Those who, you know, live by the sword will die by the sword. He said, do, do, you, do, you, not, do you not understand the power that I, I wield? I can call a legion of God's angels and <laughs> obliterate all these people. But that's, that's not how I came to triumph. 
I came to triumph by laying down my life, by emptying myself of my power and allowing God to, to pour out his wrath and judgment on me so that I can then break the power of those powers, which is sin and which is death. And through the cross, I can conquer. They didn't understand that. And again, when Jesus is standing before Pilate and Pilate says to him, don't you know me? Do you, don't you know the power and authority I have over you to, to release you or to condemn you? And what does Jesus say? That power you have, you only have it because it's been given to you. And the one who gave him that power is standing right there submitting to that power. How amazing, how beautiful, and how powerful when we realize that even as we live in this world with all of the, answer, the, the questions that we don't have answers, that we can look to the cross and remember God's relationship to power. It might still remain a mystery, but we can have this confidence. Because in Ephesians, Paul reminds us again that, that power that we're talking about is the same, the power that lives in us is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. Paul is using every Greek word to, for power. That's what he's doing there. And every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Even though we might not understand God's relationship to power in our world and why God doesn't do certain things a certain way, this is the confidence we have that Jesus has triumphed in the cross. And one day, that ultimate victory will be manifest when Jesus comes to restore the kingdom of God as it was always meant to be. God and power. The last thing that uh, Kohelet has to teach us is about wisdom and power. How we ought to live as wise ones in this broken world, in the mystery of God's dealing with power, in the realities of power, with the limitations of power. How do we as God's people live in this space? Well, again, uh, Commentators have debated about this section, the first few verses in chapter 8, because the grammar and the, the syntax is really quite complex and it's messy. But if we stand back and take a look, maybe we can glean the, the key thoughts that he wants us to walk away with. And I think the first one he wants us to grapple with, that when we as God's people, as the wise ones, are faced with situations of power, whether it's in our home, whether it's in our workplace, whether it's a school, whether it's as citizens in a country, is caution. Is caution because power is real. And power can be used and wielded against us with great harm. And so the first couple of verses, he, he's, he's calling on people to think about their appearance because verse 1, a person's wisdom brightens their face, changes its hard appearance, which again, if you're serving in a royal court, we will see is really, really important, how you looked. And if you had a, a long, grumpy, sad face, you could lose your life. Pretty bad. So thinking about your appearance, he's saying think about your words, be careful what you say, and be careful about your actions. Don't be in a hurry to leave. Don't, don't do these certain things. You know, be careful what, you, verse four, don't say to him, what are you doing? Be careful about how you are in the, in the presence or when you're with people of authority. 
Now, the best example, and again, in this section, I want to draw your attention to other wise people who served in pagan courts in the Old Testament to help us see how that plays out. For this, the best example of this is Nehemiah. And you would probably be familiar with this story in the Old Testament. Nehemiah was, a, again, a, a Jewish person who was serving in a pagan court. And he was, a, you know, the cupbearer to the king. And this is what he says, in the month of Nisan. So Nehemiah had just heard about how things were back in Jerusalem. Uh, and the city was destroyed and the walls were all broken down. And he was really sad about that. And he just heard about that. And he says that in the 20th year of King Ataxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. So he was the king's cupbearer. Um, I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And listen to what Nehemiah says. I was very much afraid. See, you, you weren't allowed to do that in front of the king. You weren't allowed to have a sad, grumpy face. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Caution, respect. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my, my ancestors are buried lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So Nehemiah is bringing his need, if you like, before the king, but in a very cautious and respectful way. And that's what Kohelet says. When you're faced with power like that, and if it's supreme power, where the king can do whatever he wants and can say whatever he wants and his word becomes law, be very careful how you speak and how you act and how you behave in that context. Now again, think about your context that we talked about. Now, most of us don't have bosses or people who have that kind of power, but the same principle of wisdom applies, being cautious in how we interact in those places. The second piece of advice he gives us is patience. Patience. Notice that he says there is a proper time, verse, verse 5, and a procedure. He says, don't be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. In other words, if you don't like something, don't just spit the dummy and just walk out the door in a huff, slamming the door behind you because you could lose your head in that context. He says, look, there's a, proper, a wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. And he says it again in verse 6, for there is a proper time and procedure for every matter. And as Kohelet has told us over and over again, wise people take the long view. Take the long view. He says, be patient. Wait for God's timing. Wait for God to move. Wait for God to act in that situation. And the best example of that is Joseph. You know how he was sold into slavery. He was falsely accused, thrown in jail. Again, abuses of power. He was there, overlooked and neglected. And we see the power that Pharaoh has, right? With the two guys who were in prison with him. One guy was the baker and the other was a cupbearer. One loses his head and the other is brought back into service. That's the kind of power that we're talking about. And he says, in that context, be patient. Joseph is just waiting for God to move. And this is what he says at the end towards of his life in Genesis 45. And now do not be distressed. He's talking to his brothers who are now freaking out because they realize that Joseph has risen to prominence and their life was now in Joseph's hands. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Patience. 
patience, the proper time, the proper procedure, trusting in God's sovereignty, trusting that God has a plan, that God is working out his plan in your workplace, in your family, in your, in your community, in your school, in your university. God is at work. There is no place that is God forsaken because God's presence is everywhere and trusting and waiting on God to do his thing. Patience. The, the third thing he would advise us is integrity. Integrity. Notice we, we come to this section again that we've come to over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes, verse 15. So I commend the enjoyment of life. Before that, verse 14, there is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life that God has given them under the sun. What is the connection? between this injunction here to live and enjoy God's benefits and everything he's already said here about power. Well, I think there are two connections. One is have a life of integrity that resists taking the shortcut of trying to grasp for power to get what you want in life. And it is tempting. It is tempting to play the world's ways, to, 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 to take on board the same things that they do and wanting to lord it over people. And that's why Peter in 1 Peter 5 has to warn even pastors not to do that. And Jesus had to warn his disciples, don't rule like the Gentiles do. That's not, that's not the God way. That's not the Jesus way. But serve people. But there is a real temptation there to, to want to take the shortcut, to, to, to grab a hold of power, to, to try and promote ourselves and get power so that now we can rule and we can be in control and, and we can tell other people what to do and we can be the top dog, the alpha. We can be in that role because we've been so sick of being subjugated and, and below that we want to now be on top and now show off our strength and our power. And, and Kohelet will say, no, be a person of integrity that trusts God's limitations, that trusts in what God has given you, that is able to be content with the life that God's given you, that is able to be so secure in who you are, in, in, in your relationship with your Father God who loves you, that you don't have to do what the pagans do, which is what Jesus said in Matthew 6, even about worrying about our daily needs. He says, don't run after the things that the pagans do. Trust your heavenly Father. The second way I think it connects with integrity is this idea of not capitulating to power. In other words, not being so threatened by power and intimidated by power that we stop living a good life, the life that God has given us to live. That we don't live in fear, that we don't cower away and, and miss out on the blessings and the goodness that God is wanting to give us because we're so afraid of those powerful people in our lives. And the best example of this is Daniel. Chapter 1, when again, he's taken from his homeland forcibly. He's taken as a refugee to, to Babylon and he's now placed in the king's court. And he's got to face this tension of how do I live as a person of integrity, honoring my faith and living in, a, in an alien country that don't share my values and don't share my culture. And it's about food. And he says, I'm not going to defile myself. He says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official, again, see that this integrity, this respect, this caution. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor, again, being patient for God's work, God's timing, to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the, and, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king. There, there's the reality of power again. 
who has assigned your food and drink? Why should he see you looking worse appearance than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. We see all of the things that we've talked about just in those few verses. But yet Daniel says, no, I want to maintain my integrity. I want to live the life that God's called me to live. I want to honor God in, even in this place of power. I'm not going to be afraid of it. I'm going to trust God and I'm going to live the good life, as it were, that God is calling me to live. The last thing that he gives us in wisdom is courage. Courage. Because he, he does say here, and this is the, one of the parts that commentators have debated about. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. What does that mean? Does it mean don't go along with the dumb idea that the king is wanting to to propose or suggest that's a bad idea? And I think that that's really what it's saying. Like stand up, be courageous, be bold. Don't, Don't just go along with the king's bad ideas. Or it can also mean don't protest the king with something dumb because you're going to lose your life. Like don't, don't pick a bad fight is pretty much what he's saying. Keep your head down, stay, you know, stay undercover, just, just play nice. I think given the context, he's saying the first. There'll be times when the king, those in authority, will do things and say things that you go, I'm sorry, I have to draw the line here. And that might be in your workplace, in, in, in a whole bunch of different scenarios that you might be in where you go, this far I can go, but you're asking too much of me. And the best example, biblical example of that is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, where the king says, okay, here's this statue. Everyone's going to bow down and worship it. And they're like, again, with so much respect, they said, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us. I mean, how profound is that? He will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Another amazing example of that is Esther who went to task on behalf of her people. And she says this, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my attendant will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. There is a time, friends, where in spite of all of the wise things we do, in spite of us exercising caution, being patient, trying to live a life of integrity, there will come a time where we will have to stand and be courageous. We see that in Acts chapter 5 when the disciples were commanded not to teach about Jesus. If you can jump up, Jay. And they said to them, look, you you tell us whose authority we should ultimately bow the knee to yours or to God's and we see that throughout the Bible where men and women of faith God's people have at some point been called to stand to be courageous and to stand against the evil powers to say no enough is enough and that can come with massive consequences and yet like Esther said if I perish I perish, but I'm not going to stand up for a bad cause. I am going to stand up for what's right. So as we conclude, just a couple of thoughts for you to think about. Firstly, whether you're here, whether you're outside, whether you're watching online, my first question to you is, have you bowed the knee to Jesus? 
Because he's the ultimate authority. He's the only one that is supreme. He's the only one whose word brings change into the created world. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the center of all life. And he laid down his life. He gave up his power on a cross to die for you and me so that you can be forgiven and brought into relationship with God and come into his family. The second question I want to ask you is, what are you doing with the power that you've been given? And now you're probably thinking, I don't have any power. Yeah, you do. You have economic power. You might have cultural power. You might have positional power. You might have power because of your age, because of your gender. We all have power in all different ways. You have power because of your education. You have power because of the opportunities that you have that others don't. We all have power. The question is, what are you doing with it? Are you following in the footsteps of Jesus who said, don't be like the pagans who lord it over people. Serve other people with the power that you've been given. Are you speaking out for those who don't have power? Because God is always against people abusing their power in whatever context. And I think we ought to be afraid of God if we are among those who abuse our power as husbands, as fathers, as mothers, as siblings, as employees, as employers, in whatever relationship we find ourselves in, if we are abusing our power, we ought to be very, very careful because God will hold us accountable. God's heart is always for the oppressed, the marginalized, the weak, the outsider, and will always bring into judgment and always hold accountable those who did not use their power well. How are you using your power? the last thing I want to say is, this is a sensitive one. How are you reacting and dealing with abuses of power that maybe you've been experiencing? Whether that might be in your home, whether that might be in your workplace, there might be abuses of power. And I want to say to you, you're not alone. Reach out, get help. And again, it might be a matter of caution, wisdom, patience, integrity. But the New Testament writers, they talk a lot about the power of community. See, change might not come immediately and change might not come because of one. But change often comes with time and with the power of many. And so I encourage you, if you're experiencing abuse in any area of your life, whether it's at church, by one of the leaders here. If you're a, a, a child or a young person or a young adult and you feel powerless and you feel not unheard or any of those things, talk to someone, talk to a, another leader, talk to me, talk to one of our elders. If you're experiencing abuse at home in one, whatever, if you're experiencing abuse in your workplace, reach out, get help. Because God is right there and His heart is for you. Why don't you bow your heads? And close your eyes and just reflect on these three questions. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'd love to pray with you at the conclusion of this service. If you're watching online, we'd love for you to get in touch with us so that we can explain to you how to to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus and how to know that your sins are forgiven and become part of God's family. And maybe you want to, in this moment, Think about all the power that God has entrusted you and how you're using it, how you're stewarding it. 
maybe you're here and you've been hurt deeply by abuses of power. And for you this morning, what you need to know is that the Lord Jesus Christ loves you. He knows your pain. He feels it. And He's there with you. And He wants to empower you. Empower you to believe and to move towards change and freedom. for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.